When I was doing my doctorate, I was studying in, at Biola, which is in uh, Los Angeles, and my son, who had grown up his whole life in Niger in West Africa, saw this as his opportunity to get to play football for the first time. And so he was asking, can I get on to a, a football team? So we did some research, found a YMCA league uh, for his age group, nine and 10 year olds. And we signed him up and then I got an email saying, you know, we got a lot of kids signed up, but we're asking the parents, we need some coaches. And so I thought, well, I've always enjoyed football, and this would be fun, and we're going to do it together. And so I signed up, and we went through the whole year, and it, it was. It was a learning time. It was fun. He enjoyed every, every game. Came to the last day of the season, and the guy who organized it for the YMCA said, well, we have a bit of a tradition that after the last game is played with the, with the kids, then the coaches, we form two teams, and, and the coaches will play a game. And I thought, oh, wow. Okay, that'll be different. Um, I'm a doctoral student at this point, which means I go to a few classes, and when I'm not in class, I go to the library, and I sit at a study carol, and I read, I write, and if you're me, sometimes you take a nap. Um, but the point is that all three of these things are very sedentary. And so a little bit concerned. That's rolling in the back of my mind as, uh, as we're getting closer to it. And I, I did think, you know, and some of the other, I mean, most of the other coaches, they're all dads, so we're all 40-something, you know. And we were kind of saying, well, there's not a lot of us. Well, the organizer goes, I've got some friends who are coming, so, you know, we'll be fine with the, uh, with, uh, the whole situation. And we'll have enough for teams. And so, you know, it ended, and I didn't see a whole lot of his friends. And so we were out there just kind of, I don't remember what it was, like six on six or five on five or something like that. And we're playing, and it's kind of fun, although there's a little pressure because we've been harping on these kids. This is what you've got to do. You never, never do, you know, all these things all season. And now they're watching us to see if we're actually going to do them or not. And, but pretty soon, this coordinator, his friends start showing up, and things start to change. These guys are big. They're young, and they're fast. And this game is no longer the same thing. And I remember at one point, I ran out for a pass, and I was wide open. I mean, there wasn't anybody around me. And all of a sudden, I saw the ball coming at me, and it wasn't like, oh, good, I'm going to get the ball. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, no, i got to catch this ball, or it's going right through my chest. I've never had a football come at me that fast. And I thought, okay, secure the catch, and now I've got to turn and run because I am so wide open. By the time I caught that ball, there were two guys pounced on me um, from across, all the way across the field, and realized, oh, my goodness, these guys are fast. And we start to ask around, and it's like, yeah, they played college football. Um, and some of them were Division II, and then there were others that were Division I, some Power Five Division I. A year ago, these guys were playing for USC and UCLA. <laughs> what we started out playing was football. What we ended was football, but it wasn't the same thing. There had been a change that had happened, and all of us 40-year-old dads were starting to go like, ooh, maybe I tweak something, you know, sub me out, and we were kind of done uh, before, you know, because this is the U.S., and so medical stuff costs real money, and <laughs> doctoral programs cost real money, so we were out. 
Um, and it's one of those things where we subbed out. Now, maybe you're not a football person. Maybe you're more of a music person. And this is kind of what we're talking about when Bach came along in the 1600s. And I'm going to mess this up, so excuse me. Hopefully, Dennis Bautista is feeling gracious today. But something Bach did with the, his, his scale that he developed, and now all of a sudden the whole orchestra could be tuned to play together, and it changed Western music forever. It was a game changer. There are other examples. You know, this is when I was at the top of my video game prowess, was with Pong. And technically... Pong and whatever this is that Andrew Weeb and Isaac Brundage told me to put up there, they're both video games, but they're not the same thing. Everything has changed when it came to, you know, the difference between Pong and whatever that is, God of War. And that's what we're going to talk about today, because God gave us an old command but then Jesus came and made it a new command because what it was and what he took it to are two completely different things. And so what we want to look at today is, you know, out of the book of 1 John, we're moving through 1 John, and a lot of people will say that 1 John is John's rumorating, he was meditating on John chapter 13 to 17. That that is the themes that are present in John 13 to 17 are the same themes that are in the book of 1 John. It's just now he has been meditating on these, depending on how you date the book, uh, the book of 1 John, anywhere from at least 30 years to probably more likely 50 years. He has been thinking about what he saw, what he tasted, what he touched, you know, what he talks about there in the first verses of 1 John where it says that these are not things that are abstract. No, we saw these, we heard these, we touched these. And he's talking about the things of Jesus. And so I want to put into your mind, as we get started here, a story that comes from the very beginning of John chapter 13. And this is at the time of the Passover, at which Jesus knew that his time on earth was short, and that he was going to be going back to the Father. And it was during that meal that they were eating together. And Jesus realized that at this point, Judas Iscariot had already determined that he would betray him. And Jesus knew that all authority had been given to him. He also knew that he had come from the Father and that he was going to return to the Father. And so as they were eating, he took off his outer robe and he went and he wrapped a towel around him. He went and got a basin and a pitcher of water, and he went to each disciple, and he started to wash their feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. When he came to Peter, Peter says, you are not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing, but one day you will. And Jesus, or Peter says, I don't care, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you're not part of me. And so Jesus says, or Peter says back to him, well, then don't just wash my feet, wash my head, wash my hands, wash all of me. And Jesus says, someone who has bathed already is clean and only needs to wash his feet. And you are clean, but not all of you are clean. And he was referring to Judas, who was among him. 
And when Jesus had finished washing their feet, he went and sat back down, took the towel off, put his cloak back on, sat down with them, and he says, do you understand what I've done? You call me Lord and you call me Master and Teacher. And that's correct because that's who I am. And yet I have washed your feet. Now that I have set that example for you, you should go and do the same thing. What I am doing, you don't understand, but one day you will. Because you know that a servant is not greater than his master. And a messenger is not greater than the one who is sent. But I have given you the example of washing your feet. Now you will do well to go and do as I have done. The story from John 13 will help set the picture of what is going to come with this old, new commandment that John is going to give us. And so, as we go to the text, it says, Dear friends, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message that you have heard. Now, what is this old command? Interestingly enough, it doesn't really say. It just says this commandment. Now, as you guys know, budding exegetes that you all are, when we don't know exactly what this verse means, we go to the context. Thank you, right here from the front row. Um, and so we go to the context, and if you're in the book of 1 John, you soon pick up the context is we've got to love one another. It's a no-brainer. And so what is this new commandment that comes? It actually comes out of Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And let's flesh that out. We go to its context and at least read the whole verse. And it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so you can see how, okay, this context is talking about among your people. So it is those that are considered among my people. That's who I need to love. And that's who is going to be put forth. Now, Jesus is going to blow the doors off of this commandment. As they have this very neat little box of this is who we have to love. And God has been doing this because, you know, this is Leviticus. You could go all the way back to Genesis 4 when Cain and Abel have their little interaction, if you want to call it that. Uh, and God comes after Cain has killed Abel. And God asks him, where's your brother? And he goes, am I my brother's keeper? You know, and Cain is trying to like, you know, don't ask me. I'm not responsible. And God's like, no, you are responsible. You know, and from that point on, we can see that, no, God is not giving us the option of not loving. We are always going to be responsible. And that continues. And so now he says, yet I am writing you a new command. So how is this a new command? What It is an old one that has been there since Genesis 4 and then reiterated in Leviticus 19, but he says it's a new command. Its truth is seen in him. That's Jesus. Because Jesus has given us a whole new truth of way to see this, this command. It's, its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. 
This idea that the true light, that's Jesus, is already shining. We have seen the example, and this goes back to what John says, you know, we touched it, we saw it, we heard it, um, and, you know, in the story of washing the disciples' feet, he saw love in action, and he can't deny it. And that's what he's saying, is that this whole commandment is getting exploded. And so, this radical new idea, it's taking it to a whole new level. And he's, you know, John's mind is going to go back to the story of the Good Samaritan that said, okay, your neighbor is not just in your little box, it is everybody. He's going to remember back to the Sermon on the Mount where it talked about eye for an eye as the old understanding, and Jesus says, no, when somebody strikes you on one cheek, you turn the other cheek. That when somebody sues you for your shirt, you give them your coat as well. When someone asks you to go one mile, you go two with them. That this idea that you're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, and Jesus says, no, love those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you. That uh, this idea is that, you know, Jesus was blowing the doors off so that it was actually becoming like a new commandment. Whether it was he sought out people like Zacchaeus, a hated tax collector, whether he went and he hung out, went out of his way so that he could talk to the woman at the well in Samaria, or maybe it's the, the fact that he went and saw someone like Mary Magdalene, you know, a, a demon-possessed prostitute, and said, I want you. This kind of love is the kind that just it doesn't really hold a can, you know, it just doesn't show what was in the Old Testament. And that's why I think John says it's a new one. And then comes to the culmination when Jesus is dying, the most unjust death and cruel death known to humanity. And at that moment, he says, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we see this selfless love that is there. Jesus has taken this concept of love, and has made it something into radically new. And as drastic as what it was, more drastic, from that little football game when we were a bunch of 40-year-old dads out there. I wouldn't say running around because we, we didn't really run. And then all of a sudden it becomes a football game with a bunch of Division I football players. It was so different, you can hardly call it the same thing. And that's what the new commandment is. So now, we are going to be at that point, say, like, oh, wow, okay, what are we going to do with this? So John says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. But anyone who loves his brother or sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. So we have this radical new concept of love, and that's what we're called to. And John says it's either you're loving or you're hating. You know, it's black or it's white. It's A or it's B. And we're like, well, could we make it A, I'm loving, Z, I'm hating, and maybe I'm in there around I or J, you know, and that we want to kind of fit in. But there's no room for that when John is talking. When John is talking through his, his gospel, or his epistle here, there is no middle ground. No, it's one way or it's the other. 
And that is what uh, John is, is putting forth here. We want to find that place in the middle. But no, John says, you're either completely loving as God has defined and Jesus has defined love, or you're hating. And all of a sudden, we might start getting that thought, just as I did in that football game, thinking, you know, maybe I better just kind of pull the hamstring and bow out here for a moment. I'm not really up to this. If he's not going to let me sit in the middle, not let me kind of sit, well, this, you know, I'm comfortable in this, you know, like that idea of being in the eye to the J. And yet we're called to love. And I had an example, you know, this really gets shown to me uh, by a friend of mine who, I mean, she has an exceptional way of loving people. Uh, those of you that are on the Israel trip and did the Bible storytelling seminar, you met Tara, uh, my friend from Nebraska. And she is a unique person. Uh, she lives life big and she is full of love. And she also often texts without her glasses on uh, is another characteristic. And then she just lets autocorrect take over. And so those of us that are in her friend group that often know, you never know what a text from Tara might actually say by the time it gets to you. And I got one of those texts one time, and it was all about me needing to go, and I had to be with her Walmart lady. And I'm thinking, okay, you don't have a Walmart. You know, what on earth? What is, you know, and it was one of those I just laughed and thought, oh, this is a Tara text. And so I was going to, you know, it's like I could text her back, but she'll text me back without her glasses because she obviously doesn't have them, and it'll mess up again. So I just phoned her, and I said, so Tara, what is the text really supposed to say? And then she goes, no, I, I had my glasses on. I need you to go, to my, go and see my Walmart checkout lady. And I'm thinking, a Walmart checkout lady? Who has a Walmart checkout lady? What is that? And she goes, well, no, I always go to the same Walmart, and I go through the same line, and I've gotten to know this lady. And so now she's part of my circle, but she's, she's developed cancer, and she's in the hospital, and she's really nervous, and I'm out of town on a speaking engagement. And so I need you to go and talk to my Walmart checkout lady. And I'm just thinking, Tara. Walmart invented self-checkout, so you can go into Walmart, get your stuff for cheap, and you can go check out and never have to talk to anybody. It's perfect. But that's not Tara. No, she sees the people who work in her Walmart as her responsibility. She has a love for them. And, you know, so there I was. It was a Sunday afternoon, and I think she knew the only thing I'd be doing was sitting at home watching the NFL. So it's like, you might as well go do something useful. So there I go, traipsing down to uh, the cancer center at Methodist Hospital in Omaha looking for Tara's Walmart lady. Um, but what an example. I mean, that to me, I, I see that over and over in people where just this radical concept of love. I mean, how many times could she have bowed out and said, you know, well, I just smile at the lady and I don't do it. No, she got involved in her life. Now this lady reaches out for help and it's like Tara can say, I'm out of town on a speaking engagement. Sorry, I'll pray for you. And she's done. No, that's not what she does. She goes the next step and she gets me off the couch and sends me off to go um, see this lady in the hospital. And that's this kind of example of radical love that can come 
when we are open to it. I had another example uh, just this week. I received a, an email from my very first Greek teacher. And he is now, I think, 95 years old. He still writes devotionals for Back to the Bible. He's an amazing man. And he's making a trip down to Texas because he used to be a pastor in a retirement home, you know, back when he first retired decades ago. Um, but he's never really retired. And he, you know, he's, he's now discouraged. I mean, back when I knew him, he was, he was somebody, he was just strong and he ran forever. And now he has to admit at 90-whatever he is that he has to get a wheelchair in the Houston airport when he's transferring. It's just too far for him to walk. But then he goes, but no, that, it's going to be about a 10-minute walk, I think. And that gives me 10 minutes with whoever's pushing that wheelchair. I'm going to find out if they're a Christian and encourage them. If they're not, I'm going to introduce them to who Jesus is. And, you know, it's that idea that he doesn't have a clue who's going to push that wheelchair, but he's got a love for him, and he's already praying for him. He's got a heart for him. And these are examples that God has put into my life to say, this is what it looks like to have this, this game of love just ramped up to what John is talking about here and taking it to the next level. And at this point, it can be very easy for us to say, oh, this is a little more commitment than what I wanted. This is a little more than what I'm really willing to go to right now. Maybe I should just kind of step to the side here. And John anticipates that, and so he takes us to this next section. And this next section is, well, at first I was just kind of frustrated with it. I find John repeats himself a fair amount. And this one is a quintessential John moment here, as you'll see. And so he says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins are, have been forgiven on account of his name. And then he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And so the first thing he says is that I'm writing to you because you know your sins are forgiven. And this was a theme in chapter 1. And this idea that, you know, we're going to have this idea idyllic love that just flows through us constantly can be this moral perfectionism that you can often claim. But if you can't really claim John is, is pushing that, that we're going to be morally perfect because he's got chapter one there where it keeps saying, if you sin, and if you say you don't sin, then you're a liar, and that's a sin. And so now you're a sinner. And so, you know, he's got you trapped and saying, no, you guys are sinners, but you have a way to confess and be forgiven because Jesus is just and faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so that's, you know, what he's saying. It's not that you're going to do this perfectly, but remember, you can confess and you can be forgiven and justified. And then he says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. You know, and this isn't an intellectual knowledge here. This is an actual knowing because you have a relationship, because you abide with him. And this will start to hearken back to John 15, that famous passage. Remember I said that the book of 1 John is really his ruminating through John 13 to 17. Right in the middle of that is John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Um, and that we have to abide in Christ. And I think that's what he's getting at here, is that I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him. You have a relationship. You're connected to him. 
And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And that's going to become important for his next section. And then is where it kind of goes a little bit like, John, what are you doing here with this? And he goes, I write to you, dear children. It's like, excuse me, John, you already did that. You know, I feel like we're on one of those LP records that were scratches, and it kind of keeps jumping back. That's what this feels like to me. Because, he, you know, and he says, I'm right to you, dear children. And if you ever want to torture Dr. Allison, just go and have him explain the tenses of these verbs, because that's a whole nother gambit of just what on earth is going on here, that we're not going to get there, you know, because the whole thing is like, so I'm writing to you, and I have written to you, I was writing, you know, who knows what's saying, what we're focusing on is what he actually wrote, because that's the important thing, and so now he says to him, because you know the Father, and it's like, wait a minute, John, that's what you just said in, I'm writing you fathers because you know him. And now he's writing, I'm writing you, dear children, because you know the Father. And he just keeps repeating himself. And now I'm going to teach you a house of proverb. Uh, this comes from Niger, where Lorraine and I worked amongst the house of people. And it simply says, Tunani uh, maganin mantua. And that means that remembering is the medicine of forgetting. So... When you have the problem of forgetting, you need to take the medicine, and that's just to remember. It seems a little simplistic, um, but I had a pastor who came over, and he used that on me all the time. It was his favorite proverb, and he used that on me all the time. And I think that's what John is getting to here. He's like, I am going to just remind you, remind you, remind you, because you are wanting to bow out of having to love the way I have said, and yet you don't have an excuse here, because... You, your sins have been forgiven. You are connected to the Father, and you have overcome the evil one. And so now he continues, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. Doesn't that sound like who's the one who's from the beginning? That's the Father. So that's the exact same thing he just said. He just repeated himself. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you. Now, when you see the word of God, I think, you know, there's small w up here. So it's the Bible, it's the truths that Jesus taught, but you're also going to hear it when John says the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's a reference back to Jesus. And so it's like, you know, this idea that Jesus lives in you, and Jesus' words live in you. And it's like Jesus and the Father are one, so it's like, okay, we just said the same thing again here. Um, You know, John is not afraid of repetition. Tunani, maganin, mantua. Um, remembering is the medicine of forgetting. And John is going to make sure that we remember this. And then he says that you have overcome the evil one. And so John really wants to drive this point home. Uh, That as we think, I can't love like this. And he's like, no, your sins have been forgiven. You have a way. If you falter in this, confess it and move on. You are connected to the Father. You abide in Christ. And therefore, you have the capability to love as Christ loved. And you overcame the evil one. And we're going to look at that in the next section because there is something that Satan does to make sure that we do not experience the love as, as what God wants us to do. And it's because of the evil one. 
What John is saying here is that, yes, you are in over your heads trying to love the way this new commandment of love says. And there's no way you can grit your teeth and do this. But here's the answer, is that you have to be connected to the Father. You have to realize your sins are forgiven. You have to realize that Satan, who's putting this in a way, you have overcome him. Not you yourself, but you through Jesus have overcome. And so we move on to the next section that, you know, I entitled that we have to abide in Christ, not in the world. And so it says here in this section, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see again this absolutism in John. If there is any love for the world in you, then there's no love for the Father in you. And it's got to be a complete rejection. Now, this is not saying that we have to hate everything that's physically created in the world that God created and called good. Um, and so, no, we do get to enjoy football because God created that. Um, no, we can <laughs> uh, enjoy the others. And, you know, aspects of God's creation, we get to enjoy that. But when he's talking the world here, it's the system that is controlled by Satan. And that's what we can have none. And he's going to tell us what that is now in verse 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh. And this is where we just, we see things, the physical things, and we want them. It's our materialism. And right here you can see, wow, for North Americans, Satan has tripped up so many of us on that one simple thing of materialism. Oh, that's new and improved. I got to get that. I want that, oh wow, that fashion, that car, that whatever, I have to have that. And we chase after that, and we, where, uh, where we're chasing after, that's where our heart is, and we're loving that. And it's this whole materialistic idea. The lust of the eyes, and this, most commentators will say that, you know, this idea, it's that thirst for the immaterial, the power, the prestige, the idea that we are going to dominate something that it's going to be ours and in our control. We love control. And that's the lust of the eyes or the pride of life. If we haven't been tripped up by the first two, then brings out the nuclear bomb, the pride, because boy, do we get tripped up by this. That pride of life, that arrogance. But now remember back to the previous section where Jesus or where John says, but you have overcome the evil one. Satan, who has this system in place, you have overcome. Where did we overcome? In Christ. Because Jesus, in his temptations, turned stone into bread. That's the lust of the flesh. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. That's the lust of the eyes. Go up onto the top of the, top of the temple and throw yourself off because normal rules don't apply to you. That's the pride of life. You're above that. And Jesus said no to all three of those. And so, yes, in Christ, we overcame. And in that, as we have overcome these things, then it says the, word, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Point out that word for live there. If you look it up, if you have the ESV or the King James, it says abides forever. 
It's the exact same Greek word that's used in John 15. And so even if that this is a correct translation, I'm not going to debate whether it should be live or abide, probably splitting hairs, but when you read it in the Greek, it is that same word from John 15, and I guarantee you, you can say that the one who does the will of God abides forever, that we are abiding in Christ. Jesus took this idea of loving to a whole new level. But don't bow out of the game because of that. Don't say, oh, I can't go there, so I'm just going to kind of hope for, you know, coming in somewhere in the middle. Because John says there is no middle. It's in or it's out. Instead, you need to realize that you were forgiven. When you fail, you confess and you go back and you start again. You realize that with Christ abiding in you, you have the ability to love as Jesus has shown. And finally, that all of the things that Satan is going to throw at you, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, Jesus has already overcome those. And so you have overcome those. He does not have the power to bring you down on that. Jesus said in John 13, The world will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. This passage, John has expounded on what he touched, what he saw, what he heard, was the love of Jesus. And he calls us to a whole nother level that is way up here in love. But he says you have everything you need to be able to attain that. And when you don't, you have, what you, you have what you need to confess it and to start over again. And if we as Prairie College could take this idea of love to this radical level, it would revolutionize our campus. And I don't say that there's no love here on our campus because I think there is. And yet just as Paul told the Thessalonians in, in uh, chapter 3, that your love would abound more and more, that it would continue to grow. This love will continue to grow more and more. We never reach and say, oh, okay, we've reached the pinnacle of love. I don't think we ever do that in this earth. So we keep striving, we keep working and relying and abiding. And that will bring us to new heights. Not so just that we see that love and that community here at Prairie College, but the world around us will start to see it and will see that we are different. There, that is our call. That is the challenge that John gives us in this part of 1 John 2. Do not, do not bow out. Do not say, that's calling me to too high a place. It's too much. Instead, double back and to see what God has given us in order that we can reach that level. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are love. It is one of your key characteristics. It is a defining characteristic of you. And it's what makes our relationship with you possible. It's what makes our relationship with our fellow humans possible, which makes life not just bearable, but makes it rich and full. 
Father, I pray for each person here, for each one of us here, that we would not buy into the lie of Satan, that that's too high a standard, that we can't attain that. I pray that you would help each one of us to keep short accounts with, with ourselves. And when we fall short, we're quick to confess. We're quick to reignite our abiding in you and to reaffirm the truth that you have overcome the evil one in us. Father, I ask that you would pour out your blessing and through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would experience amongst this student body a kind of love, an experience of community that has not been experienced before. Father, it seems like an impossible thing, and yet you ask us to ask you for the, the, the huge things and then to expect you to do immeasurably more than what we can ask and think. I pray that for our community. In Jesus' name, amen.